0: Hello, hello. Welcome along to the On The Whistle podcast. I'm your host, Zain Nabi. Today, we have a very special show as we bring you an extended interview with Bafana Bafana legend, Benny McCarthy. He's the only South African to have won the Champions League along with claiming domestic titles while playing for Ajax and FC Porto. He also led up the Premier League with Blackburn Rovers just missing out on being the competition's top goal scorer back in the 2006-2007 season. Growing up watching Benny terrorize defenses made this interview a real treat for me. There's been no more successful South African player since the dawn of democracy in the country Here was a kid who grew up playing in Cape Town's gangster leagues who is now smashing in bangers all over Europe. Benny's story is one of inspiration and overcoming all types of odds. So it's fitting that we start this interview by talking to him about life growing up on the Cape Flats. Benny, when you were growing up, how real was the threat of gangsterism and crime? Did you lose any friends
1: uh, growing up? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, it was as real as it can be. Probably now it's um, now it's um, a bit more out of control because it's like all different kinds of drugs. I believe that goes on there and, 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 yeah, and the violence. Taking someone's life nowadays is like it's like the easiest thing to do in the world, you know? They find pleasure in taking people's lives, and um, that uh, this regard for 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 another human being is completely gone out the window. And that's what I can understand. You know how we can how we can do that to to each other as a race, as as as, as humans. You know so so yeah. But when I was growing up, it was also intense because. I think it was more fight for territories and that but it wasn't as bad as now as now because now every every person has has has, has a firearm. You know, and I think where did I get where, uh, how do you even get allowed or permission or to have the license of a firearm? But it's it seems like it's like buying candy at the candy shop. You know, that's that's how easy it is to get hold of a firearm in in, 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 in the neighbor, in the Cape Flats. And it's such a shame because yeah it's a we are very good and a very hard working race and a lot of talent there but it seems like a lot of it get lost because most kids don't live past twenty one.
0: That's crazy when you think of that, isn't it, Benny?
1: Yeah, no, it's absolutely crazy. And I think it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a matter for national security. You know, I think the government, the government have to step in and drastic changes has to be made because they can't go on, you know, like so many young, talented players and young, talented young men out in the Cape that don't live past 18 or, or 21.
0: Benny, you played in the gangster leagues in Cape Town. There's a lot of people that won't know what the gangster leagues are. Can, can you explain how they operated and, and, and how you fit it in there with the team you played for, which I'm correct, was called Brazil?
1: Yeah, it's, um, yeah, we called it the Bundesliga because it was in no man's land. Not that it's got anything to do with the German Bundesliga because our translation for Bundes means uh, the ghetto, the like. You know, the bundus, the bundus, where you don't want to go. You know, heart in, in the heart of the Cape Flats, yeah. Um, burnt down houses and the real bundus. And because we turned it into a league, like a Sunday league, so it was best called bundusliga, you know, so yeah, and, and, and playing there. And, and who ran the teams? No, I think it was just organized tournaments like um, weekends. You know, like the tournaments used to run just basically on a Sunday, because most players, most players used to play for their for their Saturday for their league clubs. You know, on a Saturday, so if you were part of the Cape District League, then you would play for your club. But on a Sunday, when it's church day after church. Nothing to do. Normally, it's like, it's the gang fights. So they try to put an end to, to the gang fights and, and what was going on on a Sunday, the battlefields. So they try to make it better entertainment instead of seeing people, shooting right across and and um, innocent people get stray by stray bullets or, or any of those kinds. So then they try to mix it up by making Sundays for, the Bundesliga. And then, yeah, gang members. If you've got enough money, or if you're a, a drug dealer, or that, and you have you have a football team, you have a football team, and you can you, you know, you assemble some guys, and then you enter this competition, and then you play with other football clubs from from opposition neighborhoods, you know, or from the opposite gangs, you know, on a Sunday where they used to shoot at each other. Now they they planning tactics and how to beat the, the, the one team and who's got the better players. So I think, yeah, it was, it was more like that. And it was so entertaining because mm-hmm. you used to see when you know, when you're from certain areas, you know who's the guys that you fear the most and who's the scariest gangsters out there and guys that you know, like, oof. At night, you must never walk. come across that one because he'll just stab you or he'll shoot you because they're like that. And then you see them on a Sunday on the side of the field, they're all cheering for you and like, come on, baby, you know, because you're playing for their team that they support and they've got money on the game. And yeah, and it it was entertaining and (laughs) it was so much fun. The MTN8
0: here in South Africa offers you an 8 million rand purse if you win that competition. Did you guys have prize money? Did you get salaries? How did it work?
1: Yeah, I used to make more money playing in the Bundesliga than what I did playing for my, my club, Seven Stars, where I was, which was semi-professional. Um, I used to earn like 1,500 bucks, 1,500 rand for my club monthly salary. But in playing one Sunday, I could earn myself two, three, four grand. Four thousand bucks, five thousand rand. And this is the mid-90s? Yeah, this is the mid-90s. So I used to be a rich kid, <laughs> even back then. So I was bound to be, you know, I was bound to have money because, you know, we we, we used to win tournaments left, right, and center. Because we were that good, we would, we would enter in two, three competitions on a Sunday. So we would... F- we would end we would play from nine till twelve. Twelve o'clock, that tournament finishes, and then we rush to the next township, the next neighborhood. Um, where there's another tournament going that starts at one o'clock till four o'clock. And then from there then we play, you know, so you play three, four tournaments in one day. And I mean that is like six, seven games of football. I'm a because the, the, the games used to be very short to try and give everyone a chance. So it was always like 20 minutes, 20 minutes mm-hmm. per half or 25 minutes, you know, depending on the the number of teams there is in the tournament. So then you play to a certain certain amount of time. And yeah, we would usually just go through the teams for fun. So at the end, end of the day, you end up might, you might win like... 50, 60 grand, because you've won two, three tournaments on that day. And yeah, the, the owners of our team that used to, I used to play for the guy, and he was quite generous because I would always be one of the best players or the top goal scorer of the tournament, and then he would give me like five grand or, you know. And so that was good. So it was lucrative. So yeah, why wouldn't you want to play in the Bundesliga?
0: Sounds incredible. And then, Benny, we know you had a successful career at Seven Stars, but then you get snapped up and you go to Ajax in Amsterdam. What was it like when you, when you moved to Holland? What, what was that experience like? What is the first memory you have of arriving in Amsterdam?
1: Just how absolutely freezing cold it was. Um, yeah, I thought the weather was, was exceptionally cold, and I wasn't even sure if I would be able to hack it. there, you know, because South Africa, we've got the four seasons in one day, but never to an extent where it snows, and where it's like, you can't feel your toes, you can't feel anything. So yeah, so for me, that was that was a bit tough, but I was just that desperate, and I wanted to make it so bad as a footballer that I would put up with anything, you know? That I would put up with a- anything to make it, and and to be the best so that I can never come back, well never come back to South Africa, but never come back to play in South Africa, that i continue my career there and i learn and I, I become the best at what I do. And yeah, the best player that this country has produced. And that's always been my goal. That's always been the ultimate goals that I set for myself.
0: Benny, you were incredibly successful in Holland. You won the league. You won Cups. We know Ajax is so successful at working with young players. What is it that they taught you? What is it that they did to get the best out of you? And did Louis van Gaal have any input? Or did you have any dealings with him when you were
1: there? Not that much. Not that much. But he was the one that made the club made to sign me. So, you know, I think I I joined Ajax at the time where... Van Gaal was just on his way out to Barcelona. He signed a pre-contract with Barcelona and he was leaving Ajax, so. Um, so, I had a few dealings. I trained with the first team a few times. He said that I was pretty good enough to, to join with the first team. So, I trained, I trained with him a few times. And, um, and end of the season, when the new manager came in in the place of Louis van Gaal, I think it was really a blessing in the sky because Louis van Gaal was a, a very tough coach, like probably one of the most one of the best coaches I've seen tactically mm-hmm. at, at work. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like a real tactician and he was unbelievable but he was also scary and frightening at the same time. If it makes sense, like mm-hmm. yeah, people players used to fear them, they used to fear him because he was so tough on the field, and he was in a he was a perfectionist. He wanted everything to be perfect and to work accordingly to his standards, you know. So, so that was hard and it was scary for a young player coming from Africa. And then um, when he left and he got replaced by the Danish coach Morten Olsen who was just a delightful man you know he was such a good human being he was very kind he was um he was soft-spoken he was very specific of what he wanted from you and how he wanted it he hardly used to shout at players and you know he was just a, uh, a fantastic coach to work with and he took to me and he re- i really enjoyed my time working under him because mm-hmm. I grew, you know, I've learned so many great lessons about how to be a good professional player on the field and how to conduct yourself it, you know, and those were all things that I've learned from Morton Olsen because the way he was very helpful and very nice to all the younger players and the foreign players. He treated us all equal there was no because you from Africa you get treated a bit different and these are the Dutch players they are treated more special no everyone was equal and that was that was fantastic and and he was so he was really a good part a good reason how I how come I had success at Ajax, because yeah I had a guy that I a coach that I could talk to that I, if you have a problem, you can go to him and his door's always open for you. So that was really nice. How
0: did that change when you went to Salta Vigo, when you worked under uh, Victor Fernandez and then Miguel Latina? Um, we know your career stalled in your various spells in, in Spain. Why was that?
1: Well, I think the language barrier was a, massive, was a massive issue. You know, like when you come from Africa, you've never heard uh, the spanish language and you've gone to ix where everything is like like a well-oiled machine like everything is hard work and you know and then you arrive to spain they pay big money for you so you literally on your own so you have to look for you have to find apartments or house for yourself and you have to open up bank accounts for yourself like yeah, you literally become a grown-up in no time where the club pays a big transf- sum of money for you to get you there, but then they don't protect the investment. Mm-hmm. You know, so already for me it started off on the wrong foot because I, there was not many people that could speak English and I didn't know what I was doing, what was what, and then all of a sudden I must Look for apartment, look for a house, buy a car, open up a bank account, this in a foreign language, in a language that you don't understand and you don't know what the hell I'm doing. Benny, as
0: a youngster, it, it's unbelievable. Were you shocked at this type of treatment? Did you speak to anyone to,
1: to try and get help? Yeah, I spoke to teammates. I spoke to some teammates. Wow, well, sign language because they also couldn't... <laughs> They also couldn't, they also couldn't speak English very well, you know, but there was an Israeli player there, Chaim Revivo, and he was the only one with decent English under his name, so he was helping me more and getting me in contact with someone from the bank to come and see me, to open up a bank account and and just to get mm-hmm. my life started because yeah the club has to know where they where they're paying your salary into mm-hmm. and what's happening so yeah all that was very strange it was very hard for me to take and i was moaning at my agent constantly because he's the one that made me to come to Vigo and now i'm the one who's struggling and he's you know he's sitting nice cozy with his family at home and that and i'm the one don't I'm in the hotel. I don't know how am I gonna buy a house or how am I gonna buy an apartment and that and my life was just a mess. And then I had to worry about the football side of things, you know? So I wasn't in a good place. At football and then outside football I had to worry about now how do I understand the coach when he tells me instruction and that. So yeah, it was difficult, it was difficult.
0: Now that all changes when you go to Porto. Your first season there, Benny, you're on loan. You score more goals than games you play in. What was it that we saw a renaissance in your form?
1: No, I went there and I had a coach who believed in me, who, who, who made me feel special, who made me feel that, you know, um, I could change. He's fortunate as a coach, and he can change mine as a player, so I think the two just worked perfectly together so
0: w- what- did Jose Mourinho say to you that first season? What f- flicked the switch in y- in your mind to to get performing again that
1: um another man's lost is the next ones came so they didn't appreciate what they had and now I was coming in there and he knows what I can do and I must just show him what he believes in and give Celta a bit of humble pie you know and give them a taste of what they must out on so so yeah and I think just that and put his arm around my shoulder and treated me like a human being, so you know, not that I was like I was from Africa or from somewhere that they've, you know, so yeah, so ah, I felt like I was part of society again. I was really having a tough time in Spain, um, with the racism, um, and life wasn't, it wasn't all roses. And in Spain, and and football-wise, also, I had a lot of thought of maybe quitting football and coming back to South Africa because, yeah, you know, when you when you feel like you're really on your own in a in a foreign country, and you know, um, and you don't have your family close by, you don't have any f- also fr- friends, so. I couldn't have gone to Porto at a better time Mm -hmm. you know and then met this young coach who was so ambitious and he knew so much about a player that even haven't played many games in, in, in in Spain and then he just loved you from the minute you know you met each other and yeah and he needed me I needed him badly and it was just a I was just a match made in heaven. You know, um, he put his arm around me and I think said all the things that I probably needed to hear in football. You know, and I think that just woke the beast up. And yeah, I was going to run through a glass window for this guy. That's how bad I wanted to play for him. You know, so.
0: When we look at your time Mm -hmm. in Porto, We know that the Champions League success was one of the greatest. There's a book that's recently come out that says that that Porto's team win in the Champions League was the greatest underdog success in the Champions League history and arguably in Europe. And they also make the case, Benny, that in the 13 games in the Champions League, that Porto dominated possession in 10 of those games, in both games against United, in both games against Real Madrid, And when we think of Mourinho, we think of a coach who likes to stop the opposition. We think of a coach who uh, thinks about counter-attacking football, but the statistics in the Champions League show that you were more offensive minded. Was that something you encountered with the early Mourinho? Yeah,
1: no, he um, he wanted us to play good football, Um, very positive football. But I think as fluent and a flair that we had it was always to defend first to be disciplined to be organized um, to be (coughs) to defend first with our lives you know so starting from the front from myself down to the goalkeeper Victor Bahia everybody had to have their defensive mode on switched on and then and then it's just an automatic switch from when we're defending, when we win the ball, then it's boom, quickly. how quickly we turn defense into attack and yeah, let was to try and get to the opposition's box or goalkeeper in the matter of, of, of quick succession, bypassing certain pressing lines, and that, So yeah, his philosophy at that time was, was unbelievable and when we usually go up 1-0, 2-0 against teams or 1-0 that's when you really see how good this Porto team was because um, the way we circle the ball then we just keep it and we knock it and we open teams up and then when we find that they're a little bit vulnerable because now they're losing 1-0. And they're trying to play catch-up, and they're trying to to put us under pressure and and, and and push numbers up forward. And I think that's when we 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 sh- we see the opportunities that was created left for them trying to press us high and win the ball to try and counter, so they can get the equalizer. And that there was more and more gaps in the in the defense or in the in the, in the team that was opening up. And we had the players that could capitalize on that. We had the likes in midfield like Manich, um, Deco, mm-hmm. we had Pedro Mendes, mm-hmm. we had Alaini Chef, you know, we had um, Carlos Alberto's. So these were players that can unlock and they can find a pass into myself, into Dale up front, where we know they know one chance, one goal. So I think that's why we were so we were so good and people didn't expect this from a Mourinho type of team. They think Mourinho is very defensive mm-hmm. minded and he's about being disciplined and making sure that the doors are locked every every in every corner of mm-hmm. the pitch, you know? But it wasn't like that. He never he never once asked us to play defensive football. It was very offensive but it was within our discipline, within our roles, where, you know we have to we had to be organized, we had to think defensively first. So when the defense is solid, if when you lose the ball, you gotta win it back as quick as possible. And we used to hunt in the, in packs, we used to hunt in a team. And he's he's quite a philosopher because he used to always come with loads of different quotes and and some of the quotes about wolves that hunts in pack and you never see the the alpha the alpha on his own the alpha goes then everybody else follows and you know so it that it, theory it, it, yeah, it really made a lot of sense at the time but for us we were enjoying it because we were running things down so we never really understood fully what it meant but now when you look back at, at, at things and you see how football has evolved and how the philosophies and the way of the, the way people play the game now especially when you look at Pep Guardiola when you look how attractive it looks and then you think wow that was pretty similar that was what we used to do you know we were just more instead of all guns blazing what Man City is doing under Pep Guardiola they play offensive football to the brink like to them to the to the limit like you know they hold nothing back and we were but more disciplined when it came to that we make sure that teams don't score against us but we go and get three four five six as many as we can not as good or at the level that Man City is now but back in those days we were probably as good as 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 you get.
0: You talk about Mourinho being a brilliant tactician, a man manager, a motivational speaker. It ended really badly at his last job at Manchester United. Do you think he
1: can come back and win a major trophy? Yeah, most definitely. Because I think he didn't have he didn't have players that was very disciplined enough to play under him. And I think the players now, um, how many players did you see that was under Mourinho at, at, at Man United that people are speaking well of? Not many. Not many. Marcus Rashford, good professional, mm-hmm. also had his his hiccups, but he was never a player who Mourinho had problems with. Anthony Marcel, um, ill-disciplined, plays when he wants to all the talent, all the potential in the world to be one of the best players that you can fly in modern-day football. But yeah, he's a player when he's in the mood. He's in the mood when he's not in the mood. And yeah, when you have a coach like Jose, that don't fly. That's your job. You must be in the mood every single day. And even when you're not at football, you must still be in the mood to be back at football. You can't wait for the next day to be back. And he's that kind of manager. And I think the Man United players... They didn't have the discipline at the time to to handle to handle Joseph's tactics. I don't think I don't think he's a bad manager at all. You know? He shows Man United hasn't won anything. And as crap as people think he was at his time at United, they won they won the Europa League. They won the Europa League. They mm. won the um, Carling Cup or Yes. If or the League Cup. The League Cup. So it wasn't all bad mm-hmm. for Man United. They still got some silverware under, under their belt. And he was one of the few managers to manage to beat Pep at the flying Man City football that they play. But yeah, unfortunately, the players' player power in modern day football is, is far bigger than the caliber of a manager these days, you know?
0: Benny, obviously, after Porto, you go to England and you play really well. You have that phenomenal season where you're the second-highest top scorer behind Didier Drogba, outscore Cristiano Ronaldo, outscore Wayne Rooney. Um, And this is all while at a Blackburn team that is not a title contender. Do you think if you ever got a move to a big club like your childhood team, United, or linking up again with Jose at Chelsea, that you'd have a chance of actually regularly sitting Um, in the top three
1: goal scorers in the Premier League? Most likely, yes, I I definitely think so. Because I think with the calibre of players you get to play with, I'm talking about Michael Essien, Frank Lampard. At the time when the interest was, was very high in me, they had Ayan Robin. Mm-hmm. They had Jesper Kronkja, who was my teammate at Ajax, Amsterdam as well. You know? Um, they had Ida Johnson. They had Didier Drogba. They had um, Salomon Kalou. They had Florian Maluda. So, I'm talking about top, top. Top-level players, Michael Balak, top-level players that I could have enjoyed sharing the pitch with, and I think with the service that you get from those kind of players, it becomes easy to score. You know, you must just be you must just be a fox in the box, and then I score. You score goals for fun, and I think that's why DDA Drogba's career blossomed. And he was able to achieve unbelievable goals with Chelsea, you know. Goal-scoring targets as an individual, goal-scoring for your team and um, also helping the club to win the titles that they won because you play with a group of top, top top-class professionals and and world-class players at the biggest stage. So I think, yeah, with the qualities that I had and knowing that you know how good I am playing under this kind of manager, Jose. Um, I think I would have fitted in perfect. If that's a big if, if that move to Chelsea had uh, materialized and I've went there, I think yeah, I would have been a, a huge success playing under Mourinho again in England. And already how well I've, I've fitted in. In the Premier League, playing for Blackburn, scoring those kind of goals, you know, having to work much harder to create them, to score them, to achieve them, and then moving to a Chelsea. If it if it had finalised, then yeah, that would have been a dream move, reunited, re- reunited with my, with my coach, where I had so much success with. So yeah, I would have just wanted to do it for him on a, on a basis, on a daily basis. How has Mourinho
0: influenced the way you coach and are you in touch with him in any way? Can you call him and use him as a sounding board for
1: ideas? Um, He's influenced me quite a bit because I think yeah if you you know when you when you do your badges and after you hang up your boots and you become a coach and you sit in the classrooms and then you think to yourself what kind of manager what kind of coach you want to become um, and then you just reminisce over your career and the coaches that you've played under. And I think, yeah, he's for me, he's probably the one that stands out the most because I think um, in the manner that he managed me, you know, I wasn't the easiest player. Obviously, I was from Africa, so different culture, um, maybe different needs to, to European, to foreign, to, to, you know, to the modern day mm-hmm. European player. So yeah, so we come from completely different continents, you know, so my me adapting to life there is different from a, a, a European that's born there, you know, so it, 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 it's, it's maybe, you know, you've got to understand those things and I think he's, he's done remarkable, he's done amazing and I think, yeah, that's one of the things that I said that I need to be is I need to understand my players. I need to understand where each and everyone comes from. I need to understand what's good and what's not good for them. And I need to get to know them on a more personal level where I know what will bring out the best in their football. And that as well as the tactical side of things, you know, like giving them the right the right instruments and you know, saying the right things and you know, like I'm um, on the training field, be specific on how I want things done and, and and that. And are you in touch with Jose in any way over text, email? Can you call him and talk to him? I was in touch until he got, he left Man United. So I think he's changed, changed his number. I'm not sure. But yeah, I, I, I spoke to Kochi. I spoke to Kochi a um, few times, in fact, and... I actually wanted to go and work with him and work under him and stuff. So I was meant to go uh, for a few months, watch how we do do things and, you know, understudy him a little bit. And obviously then it didn't turn out the way he did at Manu, so he left. Benny,
0: you have a UEFA pro coaching license. You speak multiple languages. You've won championships In South Africa and around Europe, and of course the Champions League, which is the crown jewel. Where in Europe or where in the United Kingdom would you
1: like to go and coach? Listen, like I said, beggars can't be choosers. Um, I would like to start. I would like to start somewhere decent, where you know uh, I'm going to be able to see growth in what I do, and I'm, I'm making. I'll be able to make a difference, and then eventually find myself moving up the ladder, and then on to bigger things. So for me, a move to a Portuguese league would not be such a bad idea because I've played in Portugal and I know the language and I can understand so it's not something that you would go in and you wouldn't know how to communicate to players because yeah the language the language barrier is a big problem. But I speak Portuguese so I think I'll be able to do well there. And it's 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 not such a huge European league where you know it if it's your first your first time as a coach in, 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 in the European League, then you wanna start somewhere where you can have a chance. And I think Portugal would be a would be an ideal. Portugal would be ideal for me. Um, Belgium, Belgium ideal. Ideal because I know in Holland it's a bit difficult because they like their their homegrown 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 products. So they don't give foreign coaches that much of an opportunity you know. to go in Holland, whereas in Belgium you, you would get an opportunity there and I think there's good generation of footballers, um, good league, good foundation. So yeah, Belgium would be somewhere or oh, League One Championship in England, why not even the Premier League? You know, that's, that's the ultimate goal, one day to manage in the Premier League and become one of only hand pick black ethnic um, coaches to, to ever grace the Premier League so yeah it's a, it's, a, it's a very ambitious and a very big dream but like I said with hard work when you work hard and you're patient and you continue to fight for what you want and then in the end Nothing is impossible, so I can make it. I can make it possible. And to get an opportunity,
0: Benny, why do you think that
1: there are lack of African
0: coaches in top European leagues? There's so many. There's so many great players who have come through. You've listed a host of them. Why there's so few African coaches? Why there's so few black and ethnic minority coaches
1: in the top <laughs> European <laughs> leagues and clubs? <sighs> That is a question I would love to ask you, too. I don't have the answers for that. Why? But...
0: Why is it that people like Joey Barton, who had a very average track record, can get a lower league coaching job, yet Saul Campbell struggles?
1: Um, we see John Terry. We see Frank um, Lampard. Is it fair when you look at the colour of someone's skin that it becomes a difficulty to get a job? And, yeah, that is what... That is what everyone's fighting for, that the black players, we're we good to play for, for clubs, but we're not good enough to manage clubs. So, but the dynamics will change, eventually one day, you know? Rome was never built in one day. It's a process and it will take time, but it will happen. It will happen. And you see... Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank has had the opportunity, he's, he's taken. Chris Hewton had an opportunity, he's taken. Chris Powell, so it's it, it slowly starting. It's not merely as fast as we would like to, but it ain't going to happen just overnight. It must take time, you know. It will, it will be a process, but we're going to get there. And when we get there, then, you know, then it's up to us to change their minds about, Not giving us, depriving us of the opportunity to coach one day because, frankly, they don't know if we've got what it takes. They don't know if we're good enough or they don't know if we can handle. Because not many of us has been in the situation. So it will be a novelty. It will be a first for many. You know? So when the opportunity comes, hopefully the one person that will get it right will change it for the rest of us. Benny, as we,
0: we round up the interview, um, you're an iconic Premier League player, an African player and a black player. What we've particularly seen last season is players speaking out quite openly about racist abuse. We've seen Kaledo Koulibaly in Spain, Moise Khan, at U- well, now at Everton, was at Juventus. Mm-hmm. Raheem Sterling, probably the most seminal, speaking out about abuse from the stands and also the media um, and how they report. and. As a former player and a former icon, is it encouraging for you that players now have the confidence to speak out about these um,
1: issues that are a scourge of the game? Yeah, most definitely. I think it's right because I, I I don't see why do you want to protect someone you don't know who's got the audacity to to pay money to come to football matches and abuse you for no reason just because of the the skin colour tone is different from from one another, you know. So I'm. I'm I'm very pleased and I'm very happy for these players to come forward, but it's very cynical that in today's world still you know that you find some ignorant people you know still going on about things that there's nothing to go on about you know the different color colour skin tones that people have you know so so yeah i'm 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 very pleased to see that more and more players are speaking out and standing up and making a stand for it and it will be nice if we can have all football teams all football clubs unite against all this kind of behavior you know kick it out i know they 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 put banners up and kick it out but genuinely kick it out don't tolerate even your own fans to be to misbehave and and verbally abused players of, of, of
0: different skin color. Do you think UEFA and FIFA need to be harder with their punishments,
1: with their sanctions, most with their fines? Most definitely. Yeah. I think clubs shouldn't just get money taken out of their pockets because yeah, some clubs are ex- 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 excessively rich so for them getting fined a million a million euros or a million pounds is nothing. It's like chump change. You know? I think um Tougher punishment should be cast upon them, um, getting banned. No, 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 no fans for for three months games. No fans. The home team, whether you the home team, you're not allowed to have your fans at games. The away team can have their fans there, so that people feels what it feels like. You know when you get punished for those kind of things, or three points get deducted from the, from your club, then. The severity will becomes, and I think club will act ab- will act more serious on these offenders that do that do it on behalf of the club's name, and then club get points taken from. So if it becomes those punishment becomes a bit harsher, then I think yeah, we will see a big change in kicking that out the game.
0: And players, do you think they should walk off the field? What what, what is the correct behaviour if
1: you're? In
0: a stadium where you're getting an unacceptable amount of abuse,
1: no, I think you should stake your claim to the referee. You make the referee alert of what's happening, and that you not gonna, you know, you as l- long as you let the referee knows that you are receiving a lot of abuse and a lot of cha- unwanted chanting and that, and then I think you've got the right to walk off. You know that you don't have to play in front of a bunch of disgraceful people. So yeah, I think players are within their right to walk off. But on alertness that you do let the referee knows and you know that listen you are suffering abuse. Because otherwise anyone can just walk off and says, ah, I was racially abused and maybe if you weren't so the game will become in dispute, so were there any times where you felt like walking off, were there any cases where you suffered abuse playing in Europe? Oh yeah man, No. I'm from a different generation, I'm from a generation where it was far more tougher because you know, racist, racism was was part of the football culture. Back then when I went to to Europe it was slowly starting to go out but it was very much in, but yeah, we just had to get on with it. Was it particularly bad with certain clubs or countries? What? What's? C- could you give us an example of the type of abuse you'd face? Mm, Spain was pretty bad. Spain was, Spain was pretty bad. I would say, um, yeah, ma- the monkey chants, the whole stadium where people are throwing bananas at you, in Spain. Um, but I think the Eastern European countries are the, worst, are the worst. When you used to go play Europa League or Champions League, you go to Russia, woof, it's nightmare on Elm Street, really, if you're a black or ethnic minority player in the team. You, know, you go to Poland. Oh, wow. In Poland, I actually punched a player and then I walked off. I told the referee prior... To the incidents that he kept calling me and the N-word. And uh, so I conveyed my message to the referee and the player just kept on saying and doing the same thing, same thing. Then eventually you get fed up and then I knocked him out. And then I
0: walked off. Benny, I'm sitting here and my blood's boiling as I hear that story. What was
1: the club? Who was the player? Um, It was a player from... Wisla Krakow in Poland, Polish team. I was playing at Blackburn at the time. Myself, Jason Roberts, Christopher Samba. Oh, it was bad. Really bad.
0: In Spain, was there a particular region or clubs that were particularly bad?
1: Uh, it was such a long time ago. and Anyway, I think that prepared me for, you know, for life in Europe as a professional football that's what I was going to be up against all the time but I guess now the generation of footballers now are but very fortunate that it's not as bad as what it used to be and back then nothing gets done now they all got a v- they've got voices you know and they are heard and things are getting done about it so yeah so pretty pleasing that the game have changed, uh, has come a long way over the years, but still not enough. I think racism shouldn't be in our sports at all.
0: Benny, what a perfect, poignant way to end the interview. Thank you for giving us the time
1: to talk to you today. Thank you very much. Nice to chat to you as well.
0: That's all we have time for this week, gang, but please do get in touch. Go on, leave us a rating and comment if you like the show. It helps more people find it. All the key information is available in the show notes, but you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at otw and join our Facebook page by searching On The Whistle Podcast. Go on, give it a like. You can also message me directly on Twitter or Instagram at sportsguysane. Whenever we end the show, I like to say goodbye in an African language. So for today, I'm going to put on my best version of Afrikaans. Tot sinds for now.